how you guys a couple weeks ago, Jimmy was talking about uh, rappelling off a cliff. He talked about all the girls would do it, and there were some guys that were courageous enough to do it, and other guys weren't. Why, went, why did the skeleton not jump off the, to rappel off the cliff? He didn't have the guts. Okay. <laughs> I, I, get the, the, uh, I had to do something there, guys. I was... I'm a little ashamed that I don't. Uh... Those songs really motivated me. I should come to church that way every time. Something I need to tell you guys. <clears throat> I want to tell you things about me and the things I need to tell you about me, okay? What I want to tell you is uh, I'm not uh, seminary trained. I don't know all the ologies, you know, the eschatology, the soterology, the, all the ologies. Uh, Marty knows those, so if I mess up theology, he can straighten it up, okay? Um, now, what I do want you to know about me, uh, I, I'm, well, no, let's back to this. I'm an engineer by profession. I'm degreed and still practicing, and some of you guys don't know exactly what an engineer's like. Uh, if you ask my family, they would say they're kind of like a mathematician, except maybe they're less interesting, more boring, and not near as fun. So that, that's a, and an engineer looks at, a, a pessimist looks at a glass that's half empty and says, that glass is half empty. And an optimist says, well, that glass is half full. The engineer says, that glass is twice as big as it needs to be. And, <laughs> So, uh, so that's me, okay? Let me turn this clicker on here if I haven't lost it yet. Um, now, what you do need, let me get this thing going first, then we'll... Am I going? If I'm not going, that'll be fine, too. Um, what you need to know about me, that's what I wanted you to know about me. What you need to know about me is this. I was born with a terminal illness, and when I was 15, God miraculously healed me. He gave me a uh, heart transplant. I had a stony heart. But now it's flesh. I'm a sinner saved by grace that wants more than anything to rightly divide God's word today. So Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, help me get my composure. Thank you for stirring me. I pray today that we would welcome the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would comfort those that need comforting and convict those that need convicting. I pray, Lord, that you would be honored in everything we say and anything that's inappropriate, you would help people not to hear, but only hear the truth. Because we want to know the truth. 
Jesus is the truth. Bless our time together. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay. Okay, here we go. We're up. This is a picture of our world today. It's out of balance. Okay. There, are, there was the era of time where people believed that the truth should be based on Scripture. And then we moved into the modern era where people believed that truth was science. And I'm a scientist. God is not scared of science. There is nothing science is ever going to prove that will prove God wrong. The more science grows, the more it starts. We're just now beginning to understand DNA and all the things we were born with. So God is not afraid of science. But then we moved into the postmodern world. And in the postmodern world, truth was thrown out. It's relative. It's whatever you want it to be. And people call that foolishness. God calls it death. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So that's our culture. Our culture is out of balance. Well, I also think the church is out of balance. Okay? Uh, there are balancing truths in Scripture. They're both true. Is it true that we are fearfully and wonderfully made? Can I amen? amen. Is it true that there's no good in the flesh? Amen. Those are different. There's a balance. We're formed in the image of God, but we also are desperately wicked. God is merciful, but he's also just. God is defined as love, but he also shows his wrath. What happens when you have a truth that should be balanced and you get it out of balance? It creates heresy. If you only emphasize love, 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 and never any of the justice, you're out of balance. So when the culture is out of balance, which it is, then the church gets the cart before the horse. And we're going to expand on that a lot today through Isaiah. That we have taught a man-centered gospel instead of a God-centered gospel. And Isaiah, we're going to see it. It's all there. The troubles we see in our world today, all this, the silliness. Just this last week, I mean, I just dawned on me, that, that didn't dawn on me. I saw and was put into my face people who think their gender is their attitude. That is just foolishness. I'll, I'll use a theological word for what's happened to our world. They've gone wacko. Our, our world is wacko. Now, did the world going wacko make the church ineffective? Or did the church being ineffective let the world go wacko? I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg. But to find out, I ordered a chicken and an egg from Amazon, and I'll let you know. So, Let's go in and read Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. I'll, I'll read it. You guys turn there, and I'll uh, read it for you from up here. And uh, that's where we're going to be. Verse 1 through verse 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, 
and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Now this will not be my sermon, but roughly the first four verses are about looking up. Verses 5 through 7 are about looking in, and the final verse is about looking out. But we've talked about how our world is crazy. The solutions to the world's craziness lay right here. The solutions to the church's ineffectiveness lays right here. So we're going to ex examine that today. We're going to do a... <laughs> The Jinsaki approach, that's press secretary. I'm going to go through top to bottom of the scripture, then I'm going to circle back, and uh, we're going to get some more stuff. Okay. There's one more verse I want you to look at before we get to breaking down Isaiah. And it's one of the uh, scariest verses in the Bible. It's in Matthew not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That frightens me from this perspective. Today, God is, has me here to tell you guys the truth. And there are four kinds of people here today. There are ones who are my brothers and sisters who get it and understand it, and we're going to live forever together, and we're going to praise the Lord and have fellowship like you can't imagine. There are people here who have believed the man-centered gospel. They may be a member of Heritage, and they may be trusting in that membership. They may have walked an aisle when they were a kid, and they focus on something that is not really what's going to get them there. There are those who will say here, my good outweighs my bad. What's the problem? Then there are those who here that reject the Lord and just reject that there is a God. And I don't want to be responsible for you have being the one that didn't get the God-centered gospel. So you were here today to hear the difference between the man-centered gospel and the God-centered gospel. And I don't want you to be trusting in something. All these things that Jesus said he was going to reject were outward. We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. Then we do many, many, many works in your name. Jesus didn't care about the external. When you look through the Gospels, you read all the, the red words in the Bible. When the people were religious and self-serving, self-righteous and thought they had it figured out, he called them, you brood of vipers. 
He had no time for the people that did not need his salvation. Then you parallel that with the woman at the well who had multiple husbands, had a terrible life. And I don't know for sure this is right, but that may have been the longest conversation in the Bible that he ever had with a lost person. So if you don't recognize that you don't need him, he doesn't waste his time on you. We have made the gospel so easy and palatable now. Jesus would be ashamed because he threw it out there to the ones who knew they were sick. He called vipers to the ones who thought they had it figured out. And uh, we want to just beg you, please, you know, Jesus is your buddy, you know, uh, and, and we'll get into all that today. With that, let's jump back to Isaiah 6 and we'll uh, run kind of top to bottom on Isaiah 6. Okay. The first thing, and this whole clicker is going to throw me off, forgive me. Oh, there's a blank like I was expecting. Um, give me a second. I'll get it figured out by the time we leave. Christianity is primarily internal. When we submit internally, we will change externally. But if you're relying on your external goodness, Jesus said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Okay. Now let's go to Isaiah 1. First of all, I'm going to, Isaiah, the word, the name means Yahweh is salvation. Isaiah served four different kings. His ministry lasted 50 or 60 years. He was a contemporary of, of uh, Hosea and Micah. By far, he's the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. Over 65 times someone quotes him in the New Testament. Over 20 times he's quoted by name. So when Isaiah, when anything in the scripture we should read, but Isaiah has got that special place. The man, Jesus quoted him. He gave a lot of prophecies about the Messiah. So we really need to pay attention to Isaiah. And this passage here is about his redemptive story. And we're going to parallel it to your redemptive story or lack thereof. Okay. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. That was 739 B.C. is the year that Uzziah died. We live in uncertain times with a lot of anxieties. I mean, I can start bringing them up. I will a few of them. Do you get vaccinated or do you not? Do you wear a mask or do you not? If you're vaccinated or not, do you socialize with those who are or not or whatever you are or not? Okay. Should the government spend a bunch, a bunch of money to do some probably pretty good things or should they be physically responsible? We think of things like this and it causes anxiety. And, and frustration. Isaiah had some similar things going on. This is the most divided time in my years of life that our country's ever been. We're very divided right now. That is not new. That is not new. In Isaiah's time, the nation of Israel had split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And here he had been serving uh, king Uzziah, but Uzziah, who was a good king and Israel prospered under his time, then about 10 years before he died, he tried to do a priestly duty that he wasn't supposed to do. And the Lord immediately struck him with leprosy. So for the last 10 years of his life, he was a co-regent, or maybe his son Jotham was the regent. But all of a sudden, Uzziah dies. Isaiah's been serving and around these guys. But change just occurred. I'm sure his heart was, well, the sovereign king I knew and grew up with, and his son's been fine while he's been around. But when, once his, the dad's gone, how will the son really be? This, this, he was anxious. Just like we are anxious, what he did when he was anxious, instead of looking at the sovereign earthly king, he looked to the sovereign heavenly king. 
And that's what we should do in these times of anxiety. Is during anxious and uncertain times, we should turn our attention to the sovereign Lord who sits on the throne and who is in control. When he was sitting on the throne, if you picture the temple, the Holy of Holies would be about 30 by 30 by 30. I don't know that Isaiah was in the, whole, in the real temple if it was just in his mind. He could have been both because I think he was also a priest. But you picture a 30 by 30 by 30 in the throne up there. Isaiah's mental picture and his heart's submission was I may be anxious about the earthly king, but I know there's a sovereign king. And that sovereign king was sitting on a throne. He was not panicking. He was not anxious. He was in control. The picture of a king on the throne is in control. So with that, let's go on to verse, verses 2 through, oh, I guess I'll go all the way through 4, right? I'm going to read to you. And above him stood the seraphim. We'll stop right there. The seraphim, uh, are, there were different levels of angels. The seraphim are the highest level of angel. And their whole goal and role is to praise the Lord. That's their job. And they're called the fiery ones. This is the only place in all of Scripture that seraphim were mentioned. We see cherubim and we see some other things, but this is where the seraphim were mentioned. And they had six wings, two covered their eyes, two covered their feet, and they flew with two of them. And he heard one calling to another. And I wish I could talk like James Earl Jones. I think it's, it's that with a lot of bass. I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like when you go to the movie theater and it just kind of all shakes. This is what Isaiah is experiencing when the one says to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook. The strongest part of a building would be an inner room. The second strongest part of a building is the threshold of a door frame. The thresholds even shook. He, this, the, 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 their vo, the volume and, and tone of their voice. And I think this tone and volume was probably even different than Isaiah even had ever heard before. I'll explain that here in a little bit. But he heard something incredible. And the other point to this is holy, holy, holy. Is God love? Amen. Is God love? Is God merciful? Is God kind? You will never find anything in Scripture. Love, love, love. Merciful, merciful, merciful. Kind, kind, kind. This is the only attribute of God that he three-peats for emphasis. So when you think of it that way, you go, that is the one. I need to focus on all of his attributes. But if I'm going to focus on one, that is the one. He is holy, holy, holy. And we don't even really know what that means. And we aren't that good at doing it. We're going to try to expand that information today. Okay. Uh, and it says here that the whole earth was full of his glory. In Romans 1, it says to the, just to mankind, the general revelation, the book of nature says creation is enough to show God's divine power. So if, if you're just a guy out there in the middle of nowhere, you should be able to look around at the stars and the sand and, and know that you're fearfully and wonderfully made and there had to be a creator. There had to be a creator. That's what the book of nature tells us. The special revelation, the scriptures tell us God's redemptive plan for mankind. And that's how we can know specifically what he did for us. Now I want you to notice something else about uh, this passage. Uh, you can't read it, but that's okay. In verses 1 and 8, look in your own Bibles, okay? There's a different font in verses 1 and 8 than the different font is in verses both 3 and 5. And this will be all throughout your Bible. You've probably noticed this before. Maybe you didn't. 
But it's important, and it will relate here in a moment. In verse 1, when he says, uh, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, that's the word Adonai. And that word Adonai, uh, it's, it's, it has some uh, person to it. Like, I could say, uh, there's Marty. Marty Brown would be his name. But if I said, he's a pastor, that would be his title. But if I said, there's Marty Brown, my pastor. Adonai is my Lord, my God, my sovereign. He's not just the sovereign, he's my sovereign. It means he controls everything for me. So that's what uh, Isaiah said uh, when he said, I see the Lord sitting on the throne. It was my Lord, my sovereign, who's in control of me. And then when the angel says that they're holy, holy, holy is the Lord, that's Jehovah or Yahweh. That's, that's the name of God. I could say just a name. It's not just a name. It's Yahweh. The Jews won't even speak it. It's a holy name. So in one part, the angels are saying, this is the name of God. But Isaiah is saying, this is my sovereign master. And we're going to tie that into salvation here in a little bit. Okay, we got... That's in your notes. It's Adonai is the blank. And Jehovah are the blanks, if you're a fill-in-the-blank kind of person. Here's what I thought was interesting. In Psalms 8, 1, which is, this is not, it's just interesting that in the one, a few words he uses both phrases. Our Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name. And I hear Sandy Patty singing in my head when I say that. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But he's saying, O Yahweh, O sacred one, our, my Master, my Lord, O oh, sacred one, my master, my Lord, my sovereign ruler, how majestic is your name. So that brings a little bit of depth. So start looking for you and see Lord or all case Lord in the Bible. Okay. Go on. Yeah, six, five, let's go five, six, and seven, or just five. And I said to myself, I said, excuse me, woe is me. Woe is me. It has an exclamation point. I can't quite get how you go, woe is me, with an exclamation point. Woe is me? But anyway, it's woe, Isaiah. Guys, if we, the songs we sang, the, the, the songs we sang, if we could know God's holiness, this entire crowd today, we would be on our faces for one of two reasons. One reason would be, God, I'm so grateful. I'm so wicked, but you did it anyway. The other would be, I'm so wicked, God, I cannot be in your presence. This is what Isaiah was saying. Woe is me. Woe, I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I thought, why does he bring up lips? That's just, I mean, I would say, I'm an unclean man. That's why I think that perhaps the uh, angels were speaking kind of differently. He heard them in such glory say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. He heard it in a way he'd never heard. My, my lips can't even do that. I'm a man of unclean lips. I, though I'm seeing it and I want to do it, I, I can't even do that because I'm so unclean. I can't even talk and speak these words like the angels are speaking. So, who was Isaiah talking to? I think he was talking to himself. 
He doesn't have the courage to say anything to the Lord. He says he's got unclean lips. So he's saying, man, I am messed up here. I'm in a bind. I've got this holy God, and I can't even say these things these guys are saying. And then what was his emotional state? Once again, to use a biblical phrase, he was peeing in his pants scared. He was frightened. He was, he was I see God a glimpse of a partial glimpse of his holiness. And what does that do to me? I get scared. I, I, I'm a man of unclean lips. What is going on here? I'm scared of this situation here. So Isaiah was scared. And then what happens next? In Isaiah 6, 6 through 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand, uh, in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth. And said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. If your guilt has been taken, I'm going to ask for an amen here. If your guilt has been taken away and your sins have been atoned for, please say amen. Amen. One second, Isaiah is so scared. He's saying, man, I'm a man of unclean lips. Guys, we are too. We are too. And then God made a provision. God, what did Isaiah do to get his atonement? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He didn't all of a sudden go out and do a bunch of good works. He didn't start giving to the poor. Giving to the poor is a great thing. Being kinder and loving is fine. But he, in one instant, was a man of unclean lips. In another instant, God atoned for him. Isaiah 6, 8. Once he had looked upward and looked internal and got redeemed... It says in verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Something changed. One minute he couldn't talk to God. He maybe, God was talking, maybe when he heard the angels. But now he's, listen, he's wanting to hear what God says. And because he was redeemed, he hears the Lord talking. The Holy Spirit has this realm in our New Testament world to, lie, to guide us and lead us. But he says, here's the Lord saying, who shall I send? And there's an exclamation point there. Isaiah doesn't become an engineer. Well, you can send me. I think he's jumping up, waving his hands. Going, you can send me, man. I, you've, you've taken me from a man of unclean lips and you've atoned for me. Whatever you need, man, I'm, I'm there. Just send me, I, whatever it is. And if you go in and read the chapter, after that, which we're not going to, man, how long do I preach to him? Well, till everything's gone. I mean, he had much, didn't give him much hope. He just keep going and going and going and going. So uh, he was commissioned. He was sent. Okay? So those, that was the rolling through it. Now we're going to try to come back and do the Jinsaki circle back around, right? Because um, the, uh, that was hopefully an exposition of the scripture that was accurate. But as I begin to meditate on this and think about it, why is our world so screwed up? 
It's right here. Why is a Christian church ineffective? It's right here. There's one problem and three symptoms. So we're going to talk about the problem. And the problem and the first symptoms are very, very closely related. And the first problem uh, is up there in verse 3. Holy, holy, holy. We do not get how holy God really is. And in your bulletin, I put I slash we do not get how holy God really is. If I did, my life would be a bit different than it is now. Guys, I'm not an emotional person. And I feel sorry for my wife in that regard. I was, when I begin, when I begin, begin to see the holiness of God, it gets me. Because he is holy and I am not. It's like a fever. We've got some doctors in our group here. Uh, a fever is just a symptom. There's a deeper problem, right? And so there, we have talked about the, we're going to talk about the problem is we don't see God as holy as he really is. But then there's some symptoms that underlie that that are showing why the church is so ineffective. Uh, I'm going to give you guys a little illustration here. I borrowed from Greg Rader, but it's a, it's a really good one. Get the, yeah. Here we go. That's a little later. Here I've got Adolf Hitler. I did a survey. I just was for fun. I googled what's the, the, the who are the worst humans that have ever lived, and Genghis Khan comes up every once. Every list has this guy's at a number one top. Adolf Hitler's the worst guy that's ever lived. Okay, over here is Marty Brown, and guys, Marty is a great man. He's a, a nice, friendly guy, and you are in the middle. And here is what people do. Well, I look at Adolf Hitler. I'm not near as bad as him. I look at Marty Brown. Well, you know, maybe I'm not as good as him. So as I'm looking on this plane, I'm better than him, but I'm worse than him. So maybe God will let me into heaven because my good kind of outweighs my bad. Not that bad. Well, maybe not that good, but I'm good enough. So my good outweighs my bad. But that's looking at man's way. A way that seems right to a man are the ends of death. Okay, now we said God is holy and lifted up. So now to try to figure out how holy you think God is, start raising this illustration up. As you get up to the rafters and you're looking down at Marty and Adolf Hitler, they look a little closer. Now go to the moon. And now you're looking down at the same spatial relation of Marty and Adolf Hitler. Hey, go to the sun, go to Pluto. Okay, there we go. How do they look different then? They don't look different at all. The higher you get, the more that angle changes, and Marty Brown looks exactly like Adolf Hitler. And if you think you're going to get to heaven because of your goodness, you're just like Adolf Hitler, guys. We all are in that relative view. We are sinful and separated and far apart from God. So we don't know how holy God is. Let's look at R.C. Sproul's. It should have a definition there on your bulletin there. If I can find it, I'll, I'll read it, read it to you. In the scripture, there's one primary meaning and one secondary meaning for the term holy. The secondary meaning is that which refers to personal righteousness and purity. And that's the one you always hear, you're holier than thou attitude, right? And that's what we think of mostly. But that's the secondary meaning. The primary meaning of the word is separate, or if you will, theological apartheid. 
That which is holy is that which is other. That which is different from something else. When the Bible speaks about God's holiness, the primary thrust of those statements is to refer to God's transcendence, to his magnificence, to the sense in which God is higher and superior to anything that is in this creaturely realm. Again, the simplest way to discuss this is to say that that which is holy is that which is different. God is just different. We are made in the image of God because he gave us a spirit, but we don't think like him. His ways are far above our ways. We, we look at left to right and say, I'm not as bad as Adolf, but I'm better than Marty. Or the other way around. Whatever. I, I'm not better than Marty. <laughs> we look at that, but God says, you guys are all a bunch of garbage. I mean, it says in, 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 uh, uh, that we have nothing but filthy rags. But this problem of misperceiving things is not new. The, the way our, our world is turned to, it says in Judges that everyone did that was right in their own eyes. That's what's happening today. There is no truth. So the number one problem we have is we don't see God as holy as he really is. Is it great? It is great. I want to hear an amen. That Jesus, the humanity of Jesus is great. That God knows what we feel. He knows what we think. That's great. But that's what the gospel centers on right now is the humanity of Jesus that we throw out or don't like to talk about the holiness of God. That's a balancing truth. So that's our first problem. That's the problem that, that if, if we viewed holiness as holiness really should be viewed, our church, the church universal, would be more effective if we were more effective the world. The, the world doesn't get a holy God at all because we have perhaps let them down. So the problem is that we don't view God as holy as he is. Now the symptom, the symptom closely relates the first symptom. I don't think you can hardly separate the first two symptoms. It's not only three symptoms. There are probably a hundred symptoms of the church getting the cart before the horse. But I don't think you can separate number one and number two. The, the, the problem was, excuse me, not, the problem was we don't see God as holy as he is. The symptom is that we don't fear the Lord. Jimmy, a couple of months ago, talked about, he raised, how many here have heard the phrase, God-fearing man, and no one raised their hand? We've lost that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Holiness and the fear of the Lord relate. And we see God as holy, we, we don't like the fear of the Lord, right? There's about at least a hundred times in the scripture that it says to fear not. Well, that's what I like to hear. I want to hear fear not. And just go through Psalms and Proverbs alone, looking for the phrase, the fear of the Lord. And you're going to see over 20 of them, just in those two books alone. And if, if I hadn't told you what the attribute was, if I just told you there's a character trait that you can search for that will give you salvation, will give you riches, honor, and life, will give you long life, you'd go, I want that. And how about the ones who are uh, consequences? That, that uh, if you don't have the fear of the Lord, there's ineffective church discipline. There's, there's uh, uh, no holiness. There's no maturity in the church. Salvation is hampered. These are all right there in the scripture. But we who have fallen a little bit to the wokeness of the modern day, we don't really want to tell someone that wants to become a Christian, you need to be scared of him because he's holy. We say, oh, fear, don't fear him. Don't fear him. That's no big deal. It is a big deal. We hear fear talked about as a reverential respect for God. It is that, but it is so much more. Did Isaiah, was his 
reaction. I really respect him. I really respect God. It's unbelievable how much. He was scared. Let's look on your bulletin again for another definition of the fear of the Lord. The left-hand side. The continual awareness that I'm in the presence of a holy, just, and almighty God. And that every thought, word, action, and deed is open before him and is being judged by him. That's how you get, that is the fear of the Lord, man. If, if, if Jimmy followed me and it was in my head and knew every thought, I would be ashamed. But God knows my every thought and he judges them. And you know, I almost want to change that definition. I wanted to say, and being evaluated by him. And I realized the same ineffectiveness that the church has gotten by trying to make it more man-centered. Guys, it is called the judgment seat of Christ. I'm not made, I didn't put the word in there. He did. And it says you will be judged and your wood, your hay, and your stubble will be burned away. And nothing will be left but your gold, silver, and precious stones. He's who used the word judgment. So why did I react and not like the word judgment? Because I don't want to be judged. I mean, I don't like, even like my performance previews at work. Who wants to be judged? But he is a judge. Our wood, hay, and stubble are going to be burned away. Our gold, silver, and precious stones will remain. So we have toned that down. We have uh, changed the uh, way we frame things. Here's how... Uh, Ed talked last week about there's no condemnation. So I want to balance this truth because when we talk about the judgment seat of Christ, there is no condemnation. You are not, I am forgiven forever. There's nothing I can do that will ever remove my relationship because just like Isaiah, that the, the coal that God sent out was atoned for his sinful lips, I'm atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. No matter what I do, there is no condemnation. Amen? Amen. But look at this. In the exact verse, it talks about your sins being far as the east is from the west. For as the high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who what? Fear him. We don't want, I don't, we don't like the fear him part. But we didn't write the book. I mean, it's, it's, we need to learn that he is holy. When we learn he's holy, we'll see he knows everything we're doing, thinking, thinking about doing. And when we do that, that'll make you scared. So maybe we'll adjust our lives a little bit. Instead, we preach the gospel that says, I don't worry. Here's uh, the one that Jesus told us. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Here's the simple way to put it. Do you fear the thunder that you hear or do you fear the one who made the thunder? And that's the real issue, right? So symptom number one, we desire to focus on the fear not and we ignore the fear of the Lord. Now here's the little epiphany I had and, and, and it's, a it's a progression. It's not either fear not or fear him. You cannot live in fear not until you have feared the Lord. It's a progression. We have to first learn to fear the Lord, then we can live in the fear not. Okay? Let's move on to the second symptom. We preach Jesus as your buddy, okay? 
We want Jesus to be our friend before we submit to him as a slave would to a master. I think slavery is the uh, biggest stain in our country's history and probably the biggest stain on our modern civilized world's history. But what happened when the Bible was being printed, people were getting a moral consciousness about how bad slavery was. And because of that, these Bibles that we have are printed do not tell us the full truth. And here's where it's at. Everywhere, most places in the New Testament where we use the word Lord, not talking about God, but talking about my relationship with Christ, it is a sovereign leader. It's kurios is the Greek word used. But then when it talks about a servant or a bond servant, it uses doulos. And a doulos, no man can serve two masters. He'll love the one who hates you. That, has that always confused you? It's like, oh, that's not true. I could work at 7-Eleven in the morning and work at Circle K at night. I could serve two. But no man can serve two slaves. Slave masters, no slave can serve two masters. A slave only has one master. I do what you do, where you tell me to go, what you want me to do. I only have one master. So every time you see servant in the Bible, you should really be reading that as slave. That is our relationship to Christ, is he is the sovereign master, and we are the slave. Now, isn't it exciting? It would be terrible. It isn't that we can trust our sovereign master, because he's perfect and right. So he would never, ever ask us to do anything that is not great. But he is, and we, we dumb that down. Our symptom number two is that the way we want to we want to sell Jesus to the population. You want to come, Jesus will be your buddy. He'll be your buddy. Where to tell a, a person, hey, you want to come to Christ? Well, the first thing you need to think about is after you've realized that you're not God, he is, you're sinful, and so now you've got to have Jesus for your atonement. He wants to be your friend. He wants to come alongside you and be your buddy. Let's see what Jesus said about that. This is in John 15. You are my friends. This is at the very end, near the end of the talk to the disciples. You're my friends. And the way they showed their friendship was by doing what he commanded to. They didn't earn his friendship by doing what he commanded. No longer will I call you slaves. They were still slaves. But I won't call you a slave. No longer will I call you a slave. For a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. So the end game is to be Jesus' friend. And when you're his friend, he'll show you everything the Father showed you. But when we preach the man-centered gospel, we forget that this is progressive. We first must submit as slaves. And that is how we should tell a new person considering the gospel that you will be Christ's slave. If that's too heavy for you, then, then Jesus isn't for you. And guys, that's heavy. We live in America. We're self-determined, self-actualized. I want to do what I want to do. Be, be someone else rule my life? Are you crazy? That is so anti-American. But the, the, me and Lee Greenwood both are proud to be an American. And, uh, and I am. I think I may be the most patriotic person in this room. But this is just, we're just passing through. We're citizens of heaven. We're not citizens here, right? And so um, a new convert do you want you ready to be a slave of Jesus and just do whatever he wants you to do? Most of them are going to say, no, I don't think so. Kind of like the rich young ruler, just sell all you got to sell, sell you have and give it to the poor. Well, I don't think I want to do that. Jesus never, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let, 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 me, let, me, let me rephrase that. He just said, see you, buddy. I mean, he didn't care. His gospel was beautiful, but it was hard. 
And we make it, we make it easy believism. is going to have so many people on that day saying, hey, I walked an aisle of Heritage Baptist Church. I'm one of their members. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me. Because I didn't ever know you. If you want to know Jesus as a friend, the first progress is to know him as a slave master. And then finally, we're going to look at uh, symptom number three. Isaiah, the second that he got redeemed. Here I am, Lord, send me, send me, send me. When the Holy Spirit comes alongside us, we want him to be the paraclete, right? Over in John, uh, where is it? I've got it here. In 16, 7, 8, I'm going to read it to you. Nevertheless, this is about the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the paraclete. Man, I heard that word very early in my faith walk. Jesus is your paraclete. He's your helper. He wants to help you along. And he does. He does. He wants to be our helper. Because he won't come unless Jesus goes. But if I go, I will send him. And what does he convict the world of? He convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Once again, this is progressive. You cannot experience the paraclete, the helper. We cannot know the Holy Spirit as the indwelling comforter until we respond correctly to his conviction, his conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. So today, I, I hope my words have not been an emotional tug. I want the Holy Spirit to either comfort you and say, yeah, buddy, you are one of mine. Or I hope he convicts you that you have sin, he has righteousness, and you will be judged. Yeah, I think I'm going to stop right there. And I'm going to tell you one more thing. I, I was, uh, my wife just said, just get through on time. That's, that's, a, that's goal number one. Uh, it's very interesting to me. Uh, I think Jimmy would say this. I think Kicker would say this phrase. I think Marty would say this phrase. I think Rocky would say this phrase. Because uh, it's what we were taught. It's what we were taught. Here's what they would say. God called me into the ministry. You read the New Testament, and you'll see Paul called to be an apostle. That's it. Jesus calls us into salvation. But every believer is sent into the ministry. Isaiah said, here I am, send me. And those are the phrases we grew up with. I think our better phrase would be, you know, when I was a young man, I felt God's leading for me to be in the vocational ministry. Now, if Jimmy Tamara says he was called, I'm not, he just is. I mean, that, that, that's a phrase we all grew up with, and I know what he means. But that sets up a damaging picture for the church. It sets up that Jimmy's the special one. And I'm just, I kind of, I kind of go there. When someone's in the hospital, Jimmy will go see him. Marty will go see him. Rocky or Kicker, they'll take care of it. Guys, you are a minister of the gospel if you've truly been born again. You. Now, you may not be a preacher. You may not be a Sunday school teacher. But you do not get to sit there and say, I am not a minister of the gospel. You are a minister. You will be sent. The Holy Spirit's role is to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Then he's to come alongside. Come alongside has a tone to it that we're going to walk and do something together. God wants you involved in ministry. But instead, we preach the gospel that Jesus will be your buddy, the Holy Spirit will be your comforter, and 
God's just like a little bit more than us. And yeah, you're, yeah, you're better than, you're better than uh, Adolf Hitler. And because of that, our church has become ineffective. Not our church, but our church also. The church has become ineffective. The church is ineffective, so our society is wacko. But all we can do, we can't be responsible for society. We can be responsible for us. Today, we'll make a commitment in your heart to either, because look at the pattern here of Isaiah. He was kind of probably looking for something. The kingdom wasn't going in maybe his way he thought it was. So God made him, made him feel like he was seeking. Then he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he realized he was sinful. And oh my gosh, he welcomed. God did the atoning. He welcomed that atoning. Then he said, here I am, send me. That same pattern is for you. If you are one of the brother or sisterhood, own your ministry ship. Don't think you have to be a full-time vocational minister. You are a, matter of fact, I think that kind of hurts sometimes because it puts this mentality, the clergy and the lady, they do it, I don't have to. And there are people that Warren or me or whoever touches in our lives that we will not touch if my job for my vocation were at the church. You are a minister, own that. Now, if that was foreign to you, Jesus threw out a hard claim today that you want to be a slave. If you don't want to be, I feel sorry for you because you're going to hear depart from me. But if, I've, if the Lord and the Holy Spirit has prompted your heart today that, you know what? I did walk an aisle one time and I'm trusting in my good outweigh and my bad or I prayed a prayer. But, you know, I have never had that heart of stone turn into a heart of flesh. I pray today would be that day. We're done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your redemption. Thank you for showing yourself to me in a real way. Lord, I pray the Holy Spirit is so welcome here right now that he would convict the lost of sin and righteousness and judgment. They would feel it right now that in their internal thinking that they would be thinking, my woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a girl of unclean lips. Lord, I pray the Holy Spirit be doing that conviction right now. And for the rest of us that are already brothers and sisters, I pray that we would make Jesus our slave master and start saying to the Holy Spirit, where do I need to minister? Lord, I pray right now that you would move in a mighty way here in our lives so that you will be glorified because you are holy and we are not. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.